This will be the last time that we'll actually come through these three verses. This evening we'll be looking at the same subject but from a different text. So we finally kind of somewhat come to a conclusion of Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30. Paul writes, For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Fathers, we come this morning to the preaching of Your Word, and we begin to examine this, this doctrine of glorification of the saint. Lord God, help us to understand that, that this is not the end set up like the carrot on the string. That just as the other four links were forged in heaven, this one too is forged in heaven. Just as you are the author of the other four links, you are the author and perfecter of this one as well. God, I pray that today would be a day of great rejoicing as we understand this truth and freedom and joy and reverence and thankfulness and awe that we are promised that He who began a good work in us is faithful and sure to complete it to its end. Help us now to understand these final words of these verses from Paul. In Christ's name, amen. We've been examining these three verses for six weeks in both the A.M. And if you're new, you might say, why? Or maybe you're not new and you're still saying, why? Why so much time and detail to just three verses? Well, let me answer that question for you again from Paul in verse 35 where he says, and who will separate us from the Lord or from the love of Christ? And then he begins to give these hypothetical answers to his question. What's going to separate you from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Will any of these things separate you from God? Paul's point is, in asking the question is to tell you and to me that we should expect to face things like tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and maybe even the sword. Paul's point is to say, listen, more than likely, all of you at some point in your life are going to face these things. I mean, who can say that they've not faced tribulation in their life? Or who can say that they've not at times been very distressed in their life? Maybe even mildly some persecution or famine or nakedness or peril. And if things keep going the way they are in this country, probably, maybe even the sword for your faith. Paul's saying, will any of this separate you from that? He's saying that if we, that we can rest assured that if God is at work for us, then these things... God is going to use for our good. That's the point of verse 28. God causes all of these things mentioned in verse 35 to work together for your good. Now, not just anybody's good, we know that, but for the good of those that love God, those that are called according to His purpose. 
That is what the promise in 28 is. It's a promise that God is at work in all of these kinds of things, using them for our good. And the foundation of this massive promise are the five links that connect it from heaven to you and back to heaven again. Lloyd-Jones talks about how this chain is not a chain that just is linked in heaven and connected on earth to you, that it's more like it comes down through he- from heaven and it drapes down and puts you in the middle of that through the effectual call, and then it goes right back up to heaven. So it starts and it ends in heaven, and praise God, we're connected up to it right in the middle. That's how we're to understand this massive chain. So the reason for so much detail in these three verses, my goal is to make you strong and happy in God. Not whenever there's money in the bank and the kids are healthy and the job is going great and your marriage is strong, but to make you strong in God and to have true joy and peace when your health fails and when your job fails and if your marriage fails and if your children die and when your dreams are crushed that whenever the winds and the hurricanes and the storms of life come in and just seemingly blow everything that you think is what makes someone happy to the ground and you fall to the ground what you fall on is a rock and the rock is Romans 8.28 that God in His goodness and mercy and sovereignty and supremacy is actually using this hurricane in your life somehow in some way for your joy and your good and His glory so you can weep but not as those without hope. So you can be crushed but not as those that are in utter despair and have no idea and question where is God? So you can say, like Job, though He slay me, I will praise Him. I will trust Him. I will follow Him. So you can say like the psalmist, because His loving kindness is better than life. It's better than success. It's better than marriage. It's better than children. It's better than money. It's better than possessions. It's better than good physical health and long life because His loving kindness is better than any of that. My lips will praise God. That's why I've spent so much time on this. Because I want you to understand the foundation of this great promise. This isn't just some cheap, flimsy, thrown-out promise. Oh, don't worry, God's going to work it together for good. It isn't just some little, well, some little cliché. This is one of the bedrock promises of the Word of God. You need a massive rock foundation to survive in this fallen world. Just read the newspaper. Just, just talk to some of your co-workers. Do you know that when I come and visit you in your homes or I talk to you on the phone, the more I get to know you, the more my heart breaks for you. Because everyone in this room at some point is either experienced, is experiencing, or going to experience great pain and heartache. So what do you say to them? You take them to Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30. You take them to the foundation. You take them to the rock. And you say, I don't know why and I don't know how, but I know this. God is working for your good. 
trust Him. Before we pick up with today's theme, which I'll tell you is perseverance of the saint, or preservation of the saint, or the security of the believer... That's, in fact, that's the theme of chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. The point that Paul wants to make in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 is that God is the author and perfecter of salvation. That salvation is entirely of God. That's the theme of 5, 6, 7, and 8. But before we pick up with that, I feel like we need to do a quick review. You may have been here for all of these messages. I've preached all of these messages, and I need the review. So I figure that you need the review as well. The promise in verse 28 for God to work all things together for good is not for everyone without exception. I think that you've got that. I've heard some of you say that you've shared this with others at work and your family and your friends that you finally see, hey, wait a second, this just isn't just carte blanche. This just isn't just for everybody without exception. This is a promise that is aimed at a specific group of people, namely those who love God, those who are called according to God's purpose. And then Paul goes on to show how all of those who do love God and are called according to His purpose do so because of God's foreknowing them in eternity past. The idea of God's foreknowledge is not the idea that God saw some future act of faith on your part. God foresees everything with everyone from eternity it's not that God looked down in time and saw who would do what and He chose. That is not, that is not the point in this. That's not, the, that's not the driving impetus behind God's foreknowledge. We talked when I preached on foreknowledge about how it's connected to the Old Testament word yada, to know. And I quoted to you Amos 3.2, You only have I chosen, Amos writes. The word there is yada, known of all the peoples of the earth. It's the idea there of not just cognitive information in knowing, it's the idea there of God loving. It's the full love of God. And then we moved on to this idea of predestination, where he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. The word in which this is derived from, according to Bauer, Art, Gingrich, and Driver's lexicon, says it's, it's literally to be decided upon beforehand. Predestination, to decide beforehand, to mark out in advance. And all those who God foreknew or foreloved, He decided upon beforehand to do something with them. And what is that that He's going to do? Conform them into the image of His Son. Do you know what the very best evidence that you are one of the predestined is? That you're being conformed into the image of His Son? One of the best evidences that you're not is that you're not being conformed to the image of His Son. You confess a faith that produces no effect in your life. There is no evidence in your life at all that you are indeed born again. Then you have no reason at all to believe that you are one of these people. Now, as long as there is breath in your lungs, there is hope for your soul. Because all of us were rebellious at one point. And all of us were sinners at one point, not only by nature, but by choice. And all of us were outside of the covenant family of God at one point. But then there was a point in which we experienced the next, the next link in the chain. The call of God. All those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. 
so that we so that we would be like Him who was the firstborn among all creation. And all those who He predestined, He calls. And we talked about this term, this calling. We talked about how it's not a general call. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30, when Paul is preaching, he says that God commands all men everywhere to repent. That's the general call of salvation. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the general call of salvation. Come today. Why wait till tomorrow? For today is the day of salvation. That's the general call of salvation. That's not the call that Paul has in mind here in Romans 8, 29 and 30. The call that he has in mind here is what we have called this effectual call. It's the power of God to call a dead man to life, to cause a deaf man to hear, to cause a blind man to see, to cause a lame man to walk, to cause the veil that is, that is covering our face that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians to be torn apart so that we can hear and respond and willingly run to God. Some people argue that belief in this doctrine of predestination and effectual call will kill evangelism. I hear that all the time. Well, if you believe that, it will kill evangelism. You know what? It only kills evangelism in those who barely or misunderstand entirely these truths. Because those who understand the effectual call and foreknowledge and predestination of God also understand that the gospel is absolutely essential to carrying out the plan. Because Romans 10.14 says without the gospel no one will believe. Those who understand these truths can live reckless in the world. We can go to Iraq as missionaries because we know that if God chooses to save Muslims in Iraq, nothing can prevent it. Not the government, not culture, not their heritage, not their upbringing, not their language, nothing. Because whoever God calls comes. And we know that God has determined to save people from every tribe and tongue and nation. So we can say, let's send missionaries everywhere because people are going to be saved everywhere because God has guaranteed it. That's the right understanding of these truths. No one should be more missions-minded, missions-giving, missions-going, and missions-sending than the church that understands this chain of events. Then last Sunday, we spent both services trying to get a better understanding of justification. What does it mean that everyone who is foreknown, predestined, and called are to be justified? We saw that justification is not a reference to the internal change that takes place in conversion, but rather justification is a reference to your legal standing before God. It's how God declares the sinner no longer to be guilty, but rather now righteous in God's sight on account of the imputed righteousness given to your account. Justification is not a reference to what takes place inside of you. Justification is a reference to what God credits to you. What takes place inside of you is regeneration. What takes place inside of you is sanctification. But what is credited to you, start to finish at the moment of your salvation, is the legal declaration of God, you are now justified. The opposite of condemned. Everyone who is not justified by faith is condemned by sin. 
That's the two opposites. You're either justified by faith or you're condemned by sin and there is no middle ground. Here's the beauty of this. Everyone whom God foreknows, He predestines. And everyone whom He predestines, He calls. And everyone whom He calls, He justifies. Once again, I want to make that point very clear. Follow the chain. The chain is not broken. The chain is forged by God in heaven, and it will be completed by God in heaven. No one who is involved in this chain can opt in or out. It is God who forges the chain. Now that brings us to today. That brings us to the day. That brings us to this idea of glorification. Because that's what he says. Verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is a touchy subject. This is that, tu- this is that subject of the, the security of the believer. This is that subject of whether we are eternally secure in our salvation or whether we can lose our salvation. Now, let me just say this. If you are with me up to this point, stop prior to glorification. If you are with me up to foreknowledge, predestination, calling, and justification, can I just tell you that momentum forces you to go the next step? You can't undo the last, you can't undo the last rung. The problem with people accepting the doctrine of the perseverance of the saint is not the doctrine of the perseverance of the saint, it's the unregenerate church members. The problem with the doctrine of the perseverance of the saint is not the clarity in which it is taught in the Scriptures, it's the pragmatics in the lives of the people that we see who go to church periodically or even faithfully and call themselves believers but live like the world. And so we have a tendency to say, well... Experience tells me that it can't be true. Can I tell you that your experience is wrong? The problem is not that this truth is not in the Bible. The problem is is that you are experiencing people who have missed one of these links. No, they've missed all of them. Because you don't miss one. You're either in or you're out. And there's no middle ground. So what I want to do today, today and tonight, is I want to try to help you to better understand this doctrine of glorification or the perseverance of the saint. And I like, to, I like preaching that answers questions. I imagine you sitting out there when I'm preaching, and I imagine some of you who are thinkers, and I imagine questions that pop up into your mind. And then I try to preach to answer your questions. So let me answer three questions this morning. Number one, what is glorification? Let's start with that. If everyone who is foreknown and predestined and called and justified is glorified, well, what is that? Number two, when will this take place? When will we be glorified? And number three, what role does sanctification play in glorification since Paul doesn't mention it here? I mean, it appears to me that what Paul should have done was said, all those whom God foreknows, He predestines, and all those whom He predestines, He calls, and all those whom He calls, He justifies, and all those He justifies, He sanctifies, and all those He sanctifies, He glorifies. But He doesn't. He skips sanctification, and I'm going to argue that He skips it purposefully. Of course He does. He was writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But why? That's the third question. What role does sanctification play? Why does Paul skip it here when he doesn't in multiple other places in his writings? Let's begin with, let's begin with this whole idea of what is, glorific- what is glorification. 
Now remember, we're going to focus on this whole idea, glorification and perseverance of the saint, in the context of Romans 8.30 right now. Then tonight, you're going to come back. Right now, if we can use the old colloquium, the old phrase, uh, we're looking at the tree. But tonight, when you come back, we're going to step back and we're going to look at the forest. That's why I said we're going to finish 8.30 tonight, or this morning. And then tonight, you're going to come back and we're going to look at this doctrine in light of the whole, the whole forest. All right? Let's begin with what is, this, what is this idea of glorification. The word itself comes from the Greek word doxoxo, from which we get our word doxology. Glorification and doxology come from the same word. It's, it, it carries the idea of being full of glory or full of honor. We sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's called the doxology. That's the praise to God. It's honor to God. There are different doxologies that are given within the Scriptures. The, the word glorification comes from that same word. It's most often used in relation to God. But Paul uses it quite often in Romans in relation to you and I in our relationship to God. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, he said that every human being has sinned and fallen short. Finish the phrase. Of? So every human being in a pre-conversion state is below the glory of God. They are below the glorification that Romans 8.30 says is a guaranteed final outcome of all of those who are called. That's why we've got to be saved. He uses it again in chapter 5, verse 2. Look there. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. Let's read 1 and 2 together so we get them in context. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. That is our hope. Our hope is that we are going to be partakers of the glory of God. The point here is that one day we hope to partake in the glory of God. That's the point that he's making here. You see, all those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, and one day we are going to partake in the glory of God. I think that the point that Paul is making here is that there will come a time when every redeemed sinner will take on fully the communicable attributes of God. Do you know what the communicable attributes of God are? The term communicable. What is a communicable disease? It's a disease that one person can pass to another person. So what are the communicable attributes of God? They are those attributes that are God's that He can pass on to you and to me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. Those are communicable attributes. Paul lists them as fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. I think that the point that Paul is making is that whenever we receive our glorified bodies, when we are in the presence of Christ, that for eternity we are going to be partaking in this glory of God so that His communicable attributes will become our attributes as well. Not His incommunicable attributes. And incommunicable attributes are those attributes that are solely God's. Omniscience. Sovereignty. Omnipresence. Those are solely God attributes. We're not going to become omniscient. We're not 
going to become omnipresent. We're not going to become sovereign and all-powerful, omnipotent. Those are not attributes of ours to be given to us. Those are solely God's attributes. But there are attributes that God has that He is going to fully give to us. Why are we incapable of loving like God loves now? Because we are full of ourselves. We say to our wife, I love you unconditionally. No, you don't. No, you don't. Just Listen, just have the couples that are here right now that are on at least their second marriage raise their hands and what you will see is that nobody loves unconditionally. The reason they're on their second marriage is because somebody, either they or their spouse or both of them, did something to break that so-called honeymoon unconditional love. There's no such thing for the human being in this life because you are a fallen, sinful, self-centered creature. You are incapable in your flesh of loving like God loves. You are incapable in your flesh of having the peace that God has or the joy that God has. But listen, there is going to come a day in which you will love like God loves and you'll have peace like God has and you'll have joy like God has and you'll have patience like God has because part of glorification is God giving unto you His communicable attributes and thus glorifying you. He's used it again in chapter 8, verse 17. Look there. Sixteen and seventeen together. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Eight, sixteen, and seventeen. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we also may be what? Glorified with Him. Paul says that if we share in His sufferings, we will also share in His glory. Notice the terms, glorified with Him. When God glorifies His children, He does to them something like what He did to Jesus when He exalted Him to His right hand above every rule and authority. He gives us a share in that glory. There is going to be a day in which God is going to give something to you that you haven't got right now. Delayed gratification, folks. We are living for something that we can't even understand. No eye has seen and no mind can conceive the things that God has laid up for those who love Him. Listen, God has got something in heaven that is not rightfully to be given to you until that which is sown perishable is raised imperishable and transformed into His presence and then you will be worthy to be given what He's got for you. Right now, you can't handle it. It's like giving your 10-year-old his own car. He can't handle it. It's not the time. There will be a time if he grows and matures, there will be a time in which you will gladly say to him, I've waited for 16 years to do this, or 18, or whatever it is that you're going to bless them with, or their house, or their marriage, or whatever it is, and you say, I've waited for you to mature for this. Remember, my, my father gave me my grandfather's belt buckle that he was wearing when he was killed in, his, in this in an automobile accident. And I, I was too young for it. I was six or seven years old, and it was a belt buckle. So I did what any six or seven-year-old would do with a belt buckle. I put it on a belt and wore it. And my dad about had a stroke. 
I didn't understand that it was a keepsake, something that you put up, and he took it back away from me. And he said, you're not ready for this yet. Listen, you're not ready for the communicable attributes of God yet because you are still in your sinful bodies. But there's a day coming when you will be ready for it. There's a day coming in which God is going to resurrect you from the dead and God is going to make you a partaker with the glory of Christ. There is a day coming when you will no longer look at yourself and say, Oh, sinful man that I am, why do I struggle with the sins of the flesh and seemingly the same thing week in and week out and day in and day out? Why do I keep falling to the same temptation? There will come a day in which you will look down and you will say, Is this me? Is this me? And God's going to say, Yeah, it's you after I finish my work on you. And He's going to give you those attributes. He also used it in chapter 8, verse 21. Look at what He says. He talks about the creation. The creation itself also will set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul says that one day even creation will share in the glory of God. Read Isaiah 11. Read Isaiah 65. Isaiah talks about this being a new heaven and a new earth, an eternal reign in which even creation is going to be set back in order. Where the dog won't chase the cat and the lion won't eat the ox. And the snake will no longer bite you to try to kill you. Creation will no longer groan and war with one another because God's going to give it back its glory that it had in the beginning from His original intent. And then he says in verse 30, Paul says that this sharing in the glory of God is our destiny. That's what he says in verse 30. And all those that were predestined were called, and all those that were called were justified. And get this, everyone who's justified is going to be glorified because it's God's plan to do it that way. <coughs> Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.42, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown a perishable body, but it's raised an imperishable body. He says in 1 Corinthians 15.43, It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. You know what that means? That means to be glorified means no more pain. Do you realize that there's going to be a time if you are in Christ where pain will no longer even be a memory? Pain will be gone. There'll be no fibromyalgia no diabetes, no gallbladders to be taken out, no crippling arthritis, no cancer, no glasses, no wheelchairs, no crutches, no Prozac, no mental sickness, no physical sickness, no ailing, no aging, no dying. To be glorified means that we will be in the presence of God and partake of His communicable attributes and share in God's glory forever and ever and ever. We cannot even begin to imagine what that's going to be like. As I heard this sermon that was preached on Edwards' view of heaven and God, there's going to be new colors and new tastes and new smells, and new sounds. For eternity, we're going to be experiencing the newness and the freshness and the purity of God. And listen, here's the beauty of it. If you are justified, God has guaranteed that you're going to also be glorified. You cannot opt out. 
Well, I've been justified, but I just said I don't like this, so I'm going to opt out. If you do so, you just prove that you were never justified. You were never called. You were never predestined. You were never foreknown and foreloved. You were a placebo. You were a tear. You were a foolish virgin. All of the illustrations that Jesus uses throughout the Gospels to show the truth between the genuine and the fake. Well, that's what it is. Everyone strong. Everyone radiant with the beauty of Christ. When God glorifies a human being, He grants that person the privilege of beholding His infinite beauty and becoming like Him so much as a creature can for all of eternity. That's what it is. Second question. When does it take place? Our glorification is both now and a future event. When does it take place? Right now. Yesterday. Tomorrow. When does it take place? When Jesus Christ comes back. It is both a now and a present reality. Like all of the other description, Paul uses the aorist verb tense here, signifying that it is a past tense action. Notice it. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. That is called an aorist verb tense. It means it's taken place in the past. It's done. But Charles Hodge, the great theologian, says that we might understand this as a prophetic future. It is an aorist verb tense, but it's given as a prophetic future. It's going to happen. Nothing you can do about it. Not that you would want to do anything about it. No Christian says, well, I don't want to be glorified. I decide I don't want it. And no right theologian says to them, well, there's nothing you can do about it, buddy. We've done baptized you. But I don't want it anymore. Too bad you're getting it. But I don't want to be a Christian. It's too late. You done said the magic words. You prayed the sinner's prayer. Can't find that in there, but you prayed that thing. We made one up and you prayed it and that's it. You're stuck. Nobody says that. That's wrong. You see, and that's the ad hominem attack against this doctrine. Those that do not understand foreknowledge and predestination and election and calling, those that don't understand any of those, they say, oh yeah, well, those Baptists believe that once saved, always saved. As long as you make a profession of faith and get baptized, you can go out and live like the devil. I don't know a single Baptist that believes that. I don't know a single Baptist that believes that. Now, I know a lot of them that practice it, but I don't know any that believe it. Okay? And that's not what this Word teaches. So when will it take place? Paul uses what some theologians, like I said, have called a prophetic future. It's going to take place in the happen. It's going to happen in the future. But I want you to, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 because I want you to understand it's not entirely a future event. Your glorification is not entirely a future event. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. I want you to notice carefully the verb tense. What does he say? Are being transformed. It's indicative. It's not future. He doesn't say, will be transformed. He says, we are in the process right now of being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord, just as the Lord, the, uh, just as from the Lord the Spirit. When 
Will you be glorified? You better be being glorified right now. You better be being transformed right now. He says it again in chapter 4, verse 16. Turn there. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. He says it again. It's a, it's a process right now. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Let me tell you what he's saying by this. Even though you're turning gray-headed or bald-headed, even though you're getting wrinkly and arthritic, even though you may be suffering from cancer and old age and putting on weight and, and the old body just seems to be breaking down, you can't do what you used to be able to do. If you are in Christ, just as your outside is dying and growing old and weakening, your inside is growing stronger day by day by day by day. We call that the mature Christian. Maturing of the believer. You are being glorified right now. He says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far far beyond all of our comparison. When will you be glorified? Right now, you better be. If you're in this forged chain, right now. The process of glorification began at the moment of your salvation. He says in chapter 5, verse 17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. The moment that we have that, 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 that realization, Oh, God, save me! That moment, that repentance and faith, I trust in the work of Christ! Your glorification begins. It's slow. It's a struggle. It's a fight. It's a war. Oh, God, why do I do what I do? Is it just me or do any of you struggle with... Why are you still struggling with some of the things that you're still struggling with? Is it just me or do you do the same thing? Why am I still so selfish? Why am I still so self-centered? Why do I take things personally? Why do I think that every time something ill is said, it's directed personally right at me? Why Why am I so worried about materialistic things? Why don't I believe the promise that if God clothes the, the, the lily in the field that He'll take better care of me because I'm much more valuable than He? Why am I worried about food? Why am I worried about death and life? Why can't I just believe this Word? Because there is still enough Adam in you that you have to wage war with it until you die. But the evidence that you are in the chain is that you're waging the war. That's the evidence. It's both now... And it is a future event. The new things that are, that, are, that are to come about, that are evidence of your glorification being a process that's taking place now, are things like praying, reading your Bible, studying the Bible. You have new values, new dreams, new standards of living, all of which fall under the guise of what glorifies God and transforms you. The evidence that you are in the link is that you no longer value what you used to value. And you no longer hunger for what you used to hunger for. And you no longer thirst for what you used to thirst for. Because you now have a new set of values and a new set of desires and a new set of rules in which you are to live your life. It doesn't mean that you will live by them perfectly. It doesn't mean that you will not struggle with the old because there's still Adam in you. But it means that there is the new set that is there and that you are actively engaged in the battle. That's the evidence that you're in the faith. That's the evidence that you're in the link. That's the evidence that you're in the chain. But when will it take place completely? 
If you turn to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, you'll see. Turn to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Turn past the book of Hebrews, turn past 1 and 2 Peter, and come to 1 John chapter 3. You want to know when it's going to be a completed action? 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. Do you want to know when you're going to be transformed to be like Christ? When He appears. When He says, Arise my love when he does when, no longer when he says Lazarus but when he says church forth in a moment in the twinkling of an eye you'll be transformed if you're dead in Christ you'll be resurrected if you're alive in Christ you'll be transformed into a glorified image that God has planned for you just like that it'll be done in Revelation you, know, you can write these down in Revelation 21, 27 and 22, 3. John talks about how this new heaven and this new earth is going to be populated and about us. He says in 21, 27, Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then he says in 22.3, there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and the Lamb will be on it and His bondservants will serve Him and they will see His face and His names will be on their foreheads. When is that going to take place? At the second coming of Christ is when that's going to take place. We will be glorified, transformed, made into a brand new creation. So that brings us to the last question. The first question is, what is it? The second question is, when? And now, the question is, what role does sanctification play in your glorification? Why doesn't Paul mention it here? Let me begin by giving you three reasons that Martin Lloyd-Jones gives for Paul not mentioning sanctification in the chain. Lloyd-Jones says, he gives me three reasons why he says, this is why I believe that Paul doesn't put it right here, in between justification and glorification. Because we know that in between justification and glorification lies this realm called sanctification. Unless you are converted at death. We know that it lies right here. We know that there's this period. So why does Paul skip it? First, Paul's primary concern in Romans chapters 5-8 through 8 is God as the sole agent in your salvation. If you read chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, what you're going to hear from Paul is that Paul wants you to understand God is the sole proprietor of your salvation. Paul wants you to understand that your salvation is certain from start to finish because of what God and God alone has done and is going to do. Whereas sanctification is a process, all five of the links in verses 29 and 30 are completed past tense actions done solely by God. God foreknew. God predestined. God called. God justifies. God. You cooperate with God in sanctification. Sanctification is a you and God thing. Is it guaranteed? Yes. Is it necessary? Yes. But make no mistake about it. 
you are a cooperative agent in your sanctification. You are a passive recipient in all five of the others. You were passive recipient in His foreknowledge, in His predestination, in His calling, in His justification, in His glorification. You receive the action from God. In sanctification, you are an agent of action. It is your responsibility to read your Bible. It is your responsibility to pray. It is your responsibility to honor God with your finances. It is your responsibility to honor God with your time. It is your responsibility to abstain from wickedness. It is your responsibility to discipline your body and make it your slave. That is your responsibility. And Paul doesn't want to put sanctification in here and confuse you with the idea that what God does is He justifies you and then He adds justification and sanctification up and if it comes to above the bar, then He'll glorify you. No, that's not it. He wants you to be confused by that. He wants you to understand that it is a completed thing. Whereas sanctification is a process, all five of the others are a single divine act. If Paul mentions sanctification here, he'd only confuse us on God's role in our salvation. Second, if you read the rest of Paul's writings and the rest of the New Testament, you'll see that sanctification is an, is an inevitable consequence of being justified. It's going to happen. There is no one who is justified who will not also be sanctified. See, once again, that's the problem with people's understanding of the doctrine of security of the believer. Well, I know all kinds of people that confess to be saved and there isn't any holiness in their life at all. Then you have no reason to believe that they're saved. They didn't lose it. They're not out there as bad representatives of the kingdom. God's not up in heaven going, boy, I sure blew it by saving that one. He ain't doing anything to move himself to be saved. No. That's not it. You see, the rest of the New Testament is very clear. If you are indeed justified, you will be sanctified. Because God has guaranteed that you will be glorified. You will not skip a step in between the two. Third, I hope that you've kept your place in 1 John. 1 John chapter 3 again. Verses 2 and 3. You find that sanctification is inevitable from the standpoint of glorification. 1 John chapter 3, now verses 2 and 3. Who has this hope fixed on Him? What? So if you do not purify yourself, then what? You don't have your hope fixed on Him. You don't know Him. You've not been justified. You've not been called effectually. There's been no transformation taken in your life because if your hope is fixed on Christ, you will engage in self-purification. Lloyd-Jones says that a man who truly has his eyes set on his future state of glorification will spend his time preparing himself for that moment. Let me give you an illustration. You get a letter in the mail or you get a phone call and it's from the White House. Regardless of your politics, you put whoever you want in the White House. Put Bill Clinton back in. I don't care. Just so you relate to the illustration. You get a phone call from the White House. You get a letter from the White House and it says, Rusty Enix, you have been selected by the President of the United States to attend a personal dinner, a personal and private dinner with the President. Due to security and due to the schedule, we cannot give you the exact date, but it will be sometime in the future. We will call you in a moment's notice. You must be ready. What do you think he's going to do? 
he's going to go out and get himself some clothes that will be a to go to dinner with the President of the United States. He's going to prepare his schedule. He's going to do whatever he's got to do. He's going to tell his, bo- he's going to tell his boss man, do I have any days that are off that I can just take in a moment's notice? Well, you've got three days a year. Well, I need to reserve those three days for the next year or two years or three I need to reserve them because I may need to call you in a moment's notice and tell you I've got to have them because I've got a very important date. He's going to tell his wife, honey, you've got to be ready as well. We're going to go together. You've got to have clothes that are appropriate to be in the president in the presence of the President of the United States in the White House. He's going to do all of the preparations. If he has any sense about him at all, and he has any desire at all to respect the office in which he has been given an invitation to, he's going to do everything that he needs to do to be prepared so that whenever he gets the phone call, or whenever the limousine pulls up into his driveway, or whenever he gets the registered letter that says, now is the moment, everything is dropped, grab the clothes, make the calls for the schedule, we're gone. How much more do the redeemed prepare their lives for that moment that King Jesus says, I have a dinner waiting for you. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Don't worry about your clothes because I've got a robe weaved out of the righteousness of my Son. The only thing you need to do is be getting ready because in any moment I'm going to call you either through death or my coming and you need to be ready when I call. Everyone who has their hope fixed on that glorification purifies themselves for that very moment. Don't kid yourself. If you're not living purifying yourself for that moment, you need to evaluate whether you are in the links. Don't kid yourself. You don't live the life of a rebellious donkey and think that you're in the presence of a king as his honored guest. Don't kid yourself. That is a lie of man-centered theology, not from this holy writ. This writ tells me that every man who fixes his hope upon the glorification of Christ will purify himself waiting for the moment that he is called to be in the presence of King Jesus. So let me close by asking one final question. Is obedience necessary for salvation? Everyone whom He foreknows, He predestines. Everyone whom He predestines, He calls. Everyone whom He calls, He justifies. And everyone whom He justifies, glorifies. So then, is your personal obedience necessary for glorification? Hear me out. You better believe it is. It is the evidence that you have been justified. The writer of Hebrews does the most for our understanding of this. Chapter 5, verse 9, Having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. Or chapter 12 and verse 14, Pursue peace with all men and sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14, Don't think that you can say, I'm going to skip the sanctification part. I want justification. I want glorification. I'm going to live however I want. Hebrews 12.14 says, if you skip that one, then you never had the other links. The beauty of the chain given in Romans 8.30 is that the holiness that God requires for your final salvation is promised in the new covenant to be provided for you. Here's the beauty. Here's the beauty of this. God demands it 
but He also provides it for you. Referring again to the writer of Hebrews, my favorite book in the New Testament. Christ is most glorified in this book for who and what He's done, I believe. And the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 8.6 that Christ has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as He is also the mediator, listen to these words, of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Better covenant than what? Better covenant than the Sinaitic covenant. A better covenant than the Davidic covenant. A better covenant than the Noahic covenant. A better covenant than the Abrahamic covenant. A better covenant than the covenant of works with Abram or with Adam in the garden. It is the best covenant of all. When Jesus stood up on the night that He was betrayed and said, in this cup is the what? New covenant. It was this covenant that the writer of Hebrews is writing about. It was that covenant that the writer of Jeremiah and Ezekiel wrote about. In Jeremiah 31, 31-34, he talks about this better covenant. In Ezekiel 36, 26-27, he talks about this better covenant. Here's the beauty of this. Related to glorification and sanctification, here's the beauty. The promise of the covenant. I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will observe my ways. That's the promise of the new covenant. It is no longer a, if you obey, then I will bless. It's now this. I have foreknown you. I have foreknown you. I have called you. I have justified you. Spirit within you. I will write my heart on your law. I will cause you to walk in my ways. It is guaranteed. It is necessary. And in the end, I will glorify you. That is a good covenant. On you, and doesn't rely on me. It's all rooted from start to finish in heaven. Your future glorification is made possible by is 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 not made possible by separating it from obedience, but rather by God now also guaranteeing your obedience. God guarantees it. I'm obedient because of the Spirit of Christ. I'm obedient because of what Paul said in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you is faithful and sure to complete it until the day of Christ. He began it. He will complete it. And because I have experienced it, I will prepare myself for the day that I get the call from the King. Charlie, today's the day. And so will all of you who have rightfully been justified. With this in mind, let's stand. Mark, come. Let's stand and let's declare with the hymn writer what a day of rejoicing it will be when we all get to heaven. We'll sing and we'll shout the victory. Let's sing the first and third stanzas of this hymn together. And then we'll be dismissed with a prayer and a blessing. And if you are here and you're saying, I'm not sure if I'm in the link. I'm not sure if I'm in the chain. The evidence of your questioning it is the drawing of the Spirit of God. Don't leave. Stay. And let's sit down in a room of inquiry. And let's answer your concerns. But until that moment, let all of the redeemed sing of the day that we will be redeemed. Let us sing.